0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good to be with you this morning. We uh, will continue our sort of survey series through the Book of Acts this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and pull that out, open it up uh, to Acts chapter thirteen. You can follow along uh, in your app as well, uh, the Lost Mountain Baptist Church app. If you want to kind of follow uh, in the notes and see what's going on there, you're free to do that. Um, the song we just sang, "You Are God Alone," is a song that uh, we're going to learn over the next few weeks and sing. Often known kind of as an anthem through the fall, through a time where uh, I know that there's a a lot of anxiety about uh, rising prices, about what's uh, not happening in retirement accounts right now, or rather, what is happening uh, in retirement accounts right now, about the upcoming election in November, and just so many things. It's good for us to be reminded of the biblical truth of God's sovereignty and His goodness, that He is unshakable, He is unstoppable. And so my prayer for you, for us together as a church, is that we will uh, not only learn that song that is so deeply rooted in Scripture, but allow it really to sink into our hearts um, and form the thoughts of our minds uh, over the next few months. So this morning, we're going to actually go uh, and cover uh, from a high level Acts 13, 14, and 15. Now, Henry warned me after uh, an LM Institute class that I talk too fast. So, uh, as you can imagine, that's not the first time I've been told that. So I'm going to try to move a little bit slower today, or at least articulate well uh, when I'm moving quickly. We will really drop anchor and go how I most like to preach, just sort of verse by verse and let God speak to us out of it in Acts chapter 15, but we've got to, to do a little work to get to Acts chapter 15 so that it has uh, the meaning and the power that it has, you understand where we are when we get there. Um. The question I'd like to put before you this morning is simply this. Have, have you ever heard, really heard, the gospel, the true gospel message? Tim Keller has a, a great line where he has said over and over and over to New Yorkers and to uh, Americans that he fears many people in our nation are rejecting the gospel without ever actually hearing it. They're hearing some version of what I largely heard growing up, though I was always in church, which was don't cuss, don't drink, don't have sex, have your quiet time. Those are not bad things, but they're not the gospel. And that's not to minimize Christian ethics. Uh, The New Testament and all of Scripture has a great deal to say about how the people of God are to live. But we are to live that way because we're the people of God, not in order to become the people of God. We're to live that way, and we're only able to live that way because the Holy Spirit lives in us, empowering us to be able to stomp to death by the grace and mercy of God, the sin uh, that so easily can reign in our lives without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to be thinking about that, because when we get to Acts 15, what they're having to deal with is what is the truth of the gospel? What, what is involved and what is necessary for men and women to be made right with God and to be brought into uh, the community of the people of God who will reign with God in the new heavens and new earth? Getting there takes a minute though. We've been in Acts, you know that Acts uh, 8 through 12, chapters 8 through 12 kind of uh, begins to chronicle the, the outward expansion of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. We see in Acts Ten and, and Peter recounts it in chapter 11, the salvation of Cornelius as the, as the gospel crosses the line for the first time from Jewish conversions, if we could say that, from, from devout God-following Jews understanding that Jesus was the Messiah to God-fearing Greeks, Gentiles beginning to come to faith. We see uh, Peter thrown in jail over his gospel ministry in Acts 12. We covered that last week. God springs him. Uh, And he gets out and continues to fellowship and do his ministry with the people of God. And what's happening really uh, in Acts, uh, the early chapters of Acts, but specifically Acts 8 through 12, is nothing more uh, than Acts 1 8 being played out. You remember that? Jesus says, Hey, stay here. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you after I send to the Father. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And in fact, to the ends of the earth. And we know that that's taken place because we're in this room this morning. You understand that, right? That to first century Palestinian followers of Jesus, we're the ends of the earth. We're not the ones getting the command originally to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We constitute that. The gospel has been at work. It has been advancing. And then in Acts chapters 13 through 15, it really picks up speed. And it starts to get wider and wider in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit and the redemptive work of God in the lives of Gentiles. And we should be grateful about that because that's our category. We've been enfolded by God into his covenant people who have a rich and long history. But it starts to make some people nervous. We've seen up until now a really, from a human standpoint, kind of Peter-centered movement. Obviously, God is the main character. He's the top bill in Acts. But from a human standpoint, the, the ministry of Peter has been galvanizing and pushing forward the gospel ministry. And we see a shift beginning in Acts 13, and it moves from being more Peter-centered to Paul-centered. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 13, and I just want to uh, throw out a few things as we're getting to Acts 15. The, the first is simply this, that the gospel always, today and always has resulted both, both in acceptance and rejection simultaneously. Same group of people hear the same message given by the same person, empowered by the same spirit, and it results in some in new life and others simply in rejection of it as a message. This has always been the case. I want us to look at just a few examples of this. Starting in Acts chapter 13, uh, the church in Antioch we talked about last week, they're together, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit comes on them in a powerful way and sets aside Paul and Barnabas for special missions and ministry to the Gentiles. They go out, they uh, begin to engage this work, and we're going to pick it up in Acts 13, verses 44 through 52. Acts 13, verses 44 through 52. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Heaped abuse on him. When Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There's that phrase again. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, don't let that verse make you nervous. Um, If you need to, let it make you curious to study more. But I'll just tell you this. We don't have a lot of time to go into it, but it means what it says. Funny how the Bible works that way sometimes. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook off the dust from their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we see right here at the beginning really... Of the power of Paul and Barnabas' ministry, some accept, and lives are changed. they're filled with joy. they're worshiping. They've become part of the people of God, and some rejected, some even with, a, with all of the backstory in their mind. They want nothing to do with this. But at least verse 48 tells us that, that the Gentiles who heard it, all those who'd been appointed, who'd been appointed for eternal life, did believe and receive it. There is acceptance and rejection. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14. We'll just read the first couple of verses here. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So you had Gentile God-fearers coming to synagogue, listening to to these messages about the God of the Jews. And a great number hear Paul and Barnabas and they believe, both Jews and Greeks. Verse two, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You've got acceptance and you've got rejection. And often in the rejection, there's not just rejection, is there? We've seen it twice now. There's an attempt to discredit and to destroy the character of those sharing the gospel. It's a very active form of rejection. And we're used to certain things getting both acceptance and rejection. Because this was in my mind, um, preparing for this morning, I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, We got a new grill, which I'm super excited about. It fills my heart with joy. My mouth with song. I spent most of yesterday afternoon uh, putting it together, getting it ready getting it where it was supposed to be on the, the back deck, learning how to use it. It's, a, um, it's an electric kind of pellet, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, pellet-based, pellet-using grill. little auger in it. makes me very happy, very excited. Uh, Traeger. So I was sitting out there learning how uh, to do all of this, and J.C. was out there with me. And um, Sharon appreciated that it was put together. She didn't have, I think, the level of joy that should have been there, um, not once did she break into song, but we were out there and JC was back there and I was just looking at it and when you first do it, you have to season it for like 50 minutes. It does some things and moves some pellets through and oh, the smell as it was burning off oil and seasoning the metal and you get the wood grain of the pellets. It was a beautiful time. Smoke coming up and we have hornets back there the size of blackbirds right now um, and so it ran off the smoke, ran off some of those. That was nice. But I was thinking as we were eating, any of you who've had more than one child know how difficult it is to prepare meals that all children eat, right? We got five of them, so we have no hope at all. And we have, you know, teenagers and twins that are, that are almost four. So that's never gonna happen. But Sharon had bought all this food, good food for us to grill, vegetables, really thick steaks. It was fantastic. And then we have... One kid who's not going to be there, one kid who's eating something else, one kid who says, don't make me a steak, I don't like that. Same meal, and I begin to think about this, it's not just the gospel. Same meal, high quality, cooked on a fantastic grill by a griller that I must say is exceptional. (laughs) And yet, acceptance and rejection, right? Acceptance and rejection. The true gospel has always met with this because it demands everything from us and gives everything to us. But Jesus becomes Lord. If Jesus, if Jesus isn't Lord, Jesus isn't Savior. Where Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord. It should not surprise you today that, that the gospel message meets with both acceptance and rejection. In your own circles, among friends and family, and in our wider culture, this has always been true from the very earliest days of the redemptive mission of God on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It has always been so, and it will always be so. And yet, and yet, we stand firm knowing that the advance of the gospel— The advance of the gospel is certain. It is certain because it's it's not rooted in how well we do at it. It's rooted in God's sovereign will. God has determined that it will advance. And it will advance. Let's look back at verses verses 44 through 52. Let that go. Let's look at 16 through 23 of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 16 through 23. And let me say this as you're, as you're finding your place there. Chapter 13, we'll start with verse 16. That verses 16 through 39 of Acts chapter 13 are a great summary of, of the grand narrative of Scripture. Of the single story that's unfolding So uh, if you've got your physical Bible with you today, jot that out there somewhere. This is a great place for you to go and say, what's this whole thing really about? Let's look at some of these verses right now, 16 through 23. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And now he runs through Abraham, the patriarch, slavery, exodus, wilderness, conquest. In the book of Joshua, Judges, what's happening in 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings. All the way down through David and Jesus. But, look, but listen to his language. And listen to who the active agent is here. Verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors... He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct. I like that phrasing there. He put up with them, is how we would say it. He put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. If you ever wrestle with the violence And the widespread killing in the book of Joshua, it's important to remember places like this and sit back and go, okay, whatever's happening, I know this is God working, and I know these things about God, that he is good and right and just in all that he does. So I have to filter what's going on in Judges through what I see of God revealed most fully in Jesus Christ. God overthrew the seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. Verse 20, All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him. To do. Verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Who's the active agent at work here? Who is it? It's God. It's God. Slavery doesn't stop it. Wherever his his people land doesn't stop it. The obstinance and sinfulness of his own people doesn't stop him. Nothing stops what God has determined. To happen in his world. You with me? Nothing. This is the certainty we have in the advance of the gospel. Let's look at one more place, unless maybe you just think um, that's part of it. Look back again at verses 44 through 48 of chapter 13. We just read through this, so it should be fairly familiar. Well, I'll tell you what, for time, and so I can go slower. We'll just look back at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. You, you see uh, another run at this, a, a bit of a different direction, and we'll be there in a minute, but I just want to read to you Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter doesn't say that God made a choice a long time ago that Gentiles would hear the gospel and might believe. He said, it is a certain thing. God has decreed that a portion of Gentiles will believe. He has chosen that this will take place. This is the confidence we have. There's no other confidence in gospel ministry or missions. The reason you go, the reason you share is because God has decreed that some of the people you share with are going to accept The Holy Spirit's at work in their lives. They're going to hear something profoundly powerful, earth-shattering, life-changing when you share the gospel with them. When we proclaim the gospel in the life of the church. And they're going to accept it by the grace and the mercy of God. They're going to hear it as good news Which it is. Why doesn't everyone hear it that way? It's powerful. It's strong. But some are always going to hear it as good news for reasons more and greater and deeper than simply human choice. Well, they chose to hear it that way and others chose to hear it not that way. I would really encourage you to take another run at scripture reading. To center yourself more profoundly on the doctrine of sin and how thoroughly sin corrupts our ability to hear and understand and see the things of God. But the advance of the gospel is certain. And that includes in your life the the fullness and thoroughness of the work of God in your life. In other words, you're not going to to do something or to have something done from you that shuts God off from you. There's there's no sin you can engage in that's greater than the work God did on the cross in Jesus Christ. There's no sin that you can engage in to a depth or to a length that God's grace isn't bigger than. That God doesn't hold out forgiveness to you. If you'll hear it. If your heart will receive it. If you'll agree with God about it. Now... Let's let's drop anchor for a few minutes in Acts chapter 15. That leads us up to Acts chapter 15. The work of God is advancing among the Gentiles, and Jews are getting very, very nervous, many of them, about this. And it leads to a a council meeting in Jerusalem among primarily the, the leaders of the movement at this time to address this issue, this question of Gentiles coming to faith and what is the the true nature of the gospel let's look at Acts chapter 15 beginning with verse 1 certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses you cannot be saved in other words Uh, Unless you're willing to become a Jew by custom, you cannot be saved. Unless you're willing to become like us, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Sharp dispute and debate. Can I tell you who you don't want to get in sharp dispute and debate with? The Apostle Paul. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they were traveling through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, those who were traveling with them. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Don't Now we're going to pause there. Don't miss verse 5. Miss, verse 5 is so significant. Some of the believers, right? So these are believers. Not in the sense that they're a believer they believed in God. That's modern foolishness. They're believers in that they had, they had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Right? They'd been brought into the redemptive family of God, and yet, theologically, they were way off. Which isn't that a testimony to the grace of God? That the gospel has the power to save us, even when we don't fully understand it, should make you grateful. Should make you grateful. Listen, so they're believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these are, are very religious laymen. Very religious laymen. Those who usually call the shots in the church, so to speak. And they stand up after hearing all of this. And they say, Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep The law of Moses. So the question here is they call a council to see if God can do what God's doing. They call a council to hold a vote. Let's see. They don't really hold a vote, they just make a decree in a little while. But um, hey, we need to get together and talk and see if God's allowed to do what God's doing. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? And yet, and yet, what's the true nature of the gospel? Is it My confession, your confession that Jesus Christ is Messiah, and then there are certain things I have to do. I'm required to do them. This is what they're looking at. All right, let's look at verses 6 through 12. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. So the apostles and elders withdraw from the wider church in Jerusalem to talk about this. After there's been a lot of discussion, verse uh, verse 7 says, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, brothers, family, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? This is why I tell you that, that when you meet uh, legalistic, hyper, hyper-traditional believers, they're usually miserable people to be around. Because it's a yoke we can't bear. It's a yoke we can't bear. Verse 11, no. We believe it is through the grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So, Peter flips it there. He doesn't say, notice this, that that we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that Gentiles are saved. He said, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as the Gentiles are. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So you have Peter, Barnabas, Paul, all on the side of the pure and the true gospel, which is this. The true gospel rests in the grace of God, rests in the grace of God, not the goodness of man. The true true gospel rests in the grace of God. Not the goodness of man. Which means you don't clean yourself up to come to God. You just come to God. It is the unearnable, unmaintainable, unfathomable favor of God. Offered to broken and sinful and rebellious human beings through Jesus Christ. That is good news. And Peter knew it. Peter knew it. He tells them in verse 8, hey, God who knows their heart, just like he knows their heart, our hearts, showed that he'd accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit he gave us when he accepted us. This is why a New Testament scholar now passed away, Gordon Fee, says, the real question throughout the New Testament is not, are you saved? That's what we've turned it into. It's, do you have the Holy Spirit? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, not saved. Do have the Holy Spirit, saved. Saved. This is what we see all throughout the book of Acts. This is God's sign that he's accepted people, that he sends his spirit into your heart and mind to live and to dwell. So, so, so Peter, when he comes to this question, do they have to become like us? Do they have to culturally do something to become Christians, to be Christians? He says, no, no. We've already seen God give to them the same same sonship that he gave to us. We have seen them become sons and daughters of God by the giving of the Holy Spirit the same way that we have become sons and daughters of God. In other words, Peter stands up and says, God's already doing it. We can debate all we want to here. But God's already doing what God intends to do. It's happening, and I've witnessed it, and you know I've witnessed it. Others have witnessed it. And then Paul and Barnabas jump in and say, we have witnessed it too. We have been there preaching and teaching and saw the Holy Spirit fall on both Jews and Gentiles alike. There's no distinction. God's, just, God's not impressed by, by anything we have to offer him. Some of you will know the phrase, the the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Level. It's so true. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, he's already doing. But then James, the brother of the Lord, jumps in. James, probably at this time the most influential person to speak, because James was the head of the church in Jerusalem which was the most influential at that time, if not the best church. The most influential. Look at verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So Peter, Paul, and Barnabas say, he's already doing this. James stands up and he cites Amos and says, this is actually what God has said he would do all along. So they're making two strong arguments for what's going on. James says, looking back at Scripture now in light of Christ, this is clearly what God has intended to do all along. And then he says this great thing. We should not make it difficult for people coming To God. For Gentiles. Part of this informs the way that we do church and think about church. That we not make it difficult on people. That God's drawing to himself. By putting up all kinds of weird things and walls and church stuff. That is insignificant. And not critical to the mission of God. Don't make it difficult. But then there's a question left, and the question is this, and it's very hard. I'll move it a little bit into modern days. Some of you will really resonate with, some of you uh, it will not, but it's the best we can do. The question is this, okay, then for first century Jews who become Christians, and there's not... I even struggle with that language. It's not like we think about. I mean, they would, they would not have considered them th- themselves anything except faithful Jews at that time who did understand now that Jesus was the Messiah. So they were followers of, of Jesus. Um, how, do, how do they and Gentiles come together in fellowship? When they have such strong opinions on different kinds of things when it comes to uh, particularly eating and gathering around the table. This is a big, big deal to them. We don't, we don't understand it, right? When we're driving down uh, the highway in minivans throwing french fries back at our kids. It's hard for us to understand how significant coming together around the table for a meal was. It signified acceptance, family, unity, oneness. And so there's this question. Because these these Jewish believers now still have all of this ceremonial baggage in their minds. And here's what James says. Don't make it difficult for them to turn to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He he says, Because this is so deeply ingrained in the Jewish believers in the church now, they can't overcome it. They can't experience the freedom they have in Christ. It's very clear in the gospels and very clear in Paul, Christ had declared all things to be clean. It's not what goes into our mouths, what we eat or what we drink that makes us unclean. It's what comes out of our mouths that flows from our hearts. All right, we, we know this to be true. James is not saying here that this food has actually been polluted by idols. But because the law of Moses has been spoken week in and week out, year after year after year, this is how the Jews see it. And they're not going to be able to sit down and have an experience of community and oneness with Greeks who can eat anything they want. The closest—we don't, really, don't really have— in the United States, such deep ceremonial convictions that this translates sort of here to here, if that makes sense. The closest thing you can do in the Bible Belt is probably use uh, drinking alcohol as, um, as an illustration of this. We know there's nowhere in Scripture that, for, scripture that forbids drinking alcohol, forbids us being drunk, forbids the, forbids the excessive consumption of alcohol, just as it forbids the excessive consumption and excessive use of so many different things. But we know that you can't make a biblical argument for, for not drinking alcohol. You, you can make an argument that it's not wise, that it's not wise, especially for those who come from families with, uh, with alcoholism in the family and they've seen the power of the destruction that that can do. But in the Bible Belt especially, and then especially among Southern Baptists, there's such a deep-rooted traditional ceremonial kind of understanding of, of alcohol That I know, sure, could I go to lunch and have a beer? Absolutely. Go to lunch, have a glass of wine? Absolutely. Have people over for a dinner, serve a good meal, let the adults have wine? Absolutely. But I'm going to refrain from that, especially in this area, because some people would not be able to do anything during that meal except try to get over the absolute shock. Same with you. And so what the gospel says is that we set aside our freedom to serve one another, to love one another, that we pay attention to the surroundings and to how it is that we're using the freedom that we have in Christ. And this is basically what James is saying. James is actually saying our Jewish believers are weaker, and Paul makes his argument strong in his letter to the church in Rome they're weaker, the Gentile believers are stronger they're coming in without all this baggage and they know they've been set free by Christ and yet the two can't come together unless our Gentile believers are are willing to refrain from some things now this doesn't last forever but this is where we find them and we know that, that many things make it hard to maintain to maintain Christian community you have to fight for it right? this is why we're told over and over to love love one another, to serve one another, to forgive one another. Because when you live in community, you have all kinds of slights and imagined slights, right? Yes. Any of you live in a house with anyone else? Any of you ever have any problem with anyone else in your house? Yeah. True or imagined? Christian community cannot be held, and my heart cannot Be still before God and groan by God if I'm not willing to love and to serve and to forgive. To forgive. When when I hold on to things, it fractures Christian community, partly because it fractures my spirit. So we know there's a lot of things that we have to fight for to maintain Christian community. But what James is getting at here is for them to even come together in the beginning. These Gentile converts needed to set some some things aside. And that didn't change the fact that the true gospel rests in the grace of God and not the goodness of man. He wasn't saying, be willing to say no to certain things so that you'll be accepted by God. He was saying, we're going to have to write a letter to him saying, to our churches, hey, don't make it difficult. Don't make it difficult on Gentiles coming to faith. They come to faith the same way that we come to faith. By the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all. And yet, for us to have community, those who understand the fullness of the freedom they have in Christ are going to have to set some of that aside sometimes. So that there can be unity. As we're all growing in the spirit and grace of God. Have you Have you heard the true gospel? And maybe you feel like you did hear it, but then after the gospel, and you've heard me say this quite often that many of us have heard saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but then you work real hard, right? So coming into relationship with God is this beautiful experience, and after that, it's drudgery and duty. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that in your sin, there's nothing you could do to please God. You have no ability to reach out to him. He pursues you. He brings the message of the gospel to you. And he saves you. Let's stand. I don't know where you are this morning in hearing the gospel or in sharing the gospel with people. But we know that even though it's simultaneously rejected and accepted that the advance of the gospel is certain because it's grounded in the sovereign will of God and rooted in God's grace, not your goodness. Some of you need to be reminded of that this morning, that it's not your goodness that causes you to be God's treasured possession. It's who you are in Christ. In just a minute, the, the band is going to, to lead us as we respond and worship, as we reflect, as we focus ourselves on the, the goodness and the greatness of God and his faithfulness. If you are a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you at any time while we're singing to step out, to make your way to one of the communion stations in the front or the back, to tear off a piece of the bread, or it's actually torn off. You don't have to tear it off, I guess. Pick it up. Dip it in the juice. Make your way to the side. Spend some time in prayer. This is an opportunity, a reminder to us that we need to be renewed again and again and again and again. We are people who live with a repentant posture as God sanctifies us and he grows us. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online At the Lost Mountain Baptist Church Podcast For more information about Service times, giving, and upcoming Events, check out our website LMBC.us